Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. From the BBC. Turns out bleach does not kill a common superbug. Uh, this time was always <laughs> common, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so specifically, the bug we're talking about is Clostridium difficile, also known as ah. C. diff. So if you've ever seen that Tig Notaro stand up about her contracting C. diff. Yeah, I mean, it's a funny stand up bit, but it's a very serious problem. Mm -hmm. Dr. Tina Joshi is an associate professor in molecular microbiology at the Peninsula Medical School. And the research basically is calling for more research into alternative methods of disinfecting C. diff spores. Wow. So they don't even have an alternative. They're just like, this doesn't nope. work. We got to find something. New. <laughs> okay. Yeah, right. yeah. But I mean, it's quite the reveal to be like, sure. well, we've been assuming that bleach is, you know, our first line of defense for a lot of these things. Now, C. diff is a microbe. It causes diarrhea, colitis, other bowel complications. It's known to infect millions of people across the world each year, but previous studies have shown that 12,000 Americans die from it mm -hmm. per year, and that's just the U.S. alone. Now, the study did examine spore response of three different strains of C. diff, they spiked the spores onto surgical scrubs and patient gowns, and then they scanned them using electron microscopes. So that's how they were able to figure it out. But I don't know. What else are we going to try? Maybe some lemon juice? I, I mean, know. here's the good news. No one can trick gullible people into drinking bleach to cure it. <laughs> like, yeah, we found that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they'll come up with something. It'll just be like, now we're using super antibiotics to wash the floor. Like <laughs> there you go. Penicillin wash for everyone. <laughs> right. Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from BBC.com. It's titled Tyrian Purple, the lost ancient pigment that was more valuable than gold. Mm. The uh, article starts off with a pretty summer movie narrator sort of line. So I'm going to try and attempt it. <laughs> For millennia, Tyrian purple was the most valuable color on the planet. <laughs> then, the recipe to make it was lost. <gasps> By piecing together ancient clues, could one man bring it back? <laughs> it literally That's pretty good. Verbatim. I like it. Just, <laughs> thanks. Um, so, anyways, at first, they just looked like stains. It was 2002 at the site of Kwatna, a ruined palace at the edge of the Syrian desert, on the shores of a long-vanished lake. Over three millennia after it was abandoned, a team of archaeologists had been granted permission to investigate, and they were on the hunt for the royal tomb. After navigating through large hallways and narrow corridors, they came across a horde of ancient wonders, 2,000 objects including jewelry and a large golden hand. But there were also some intriguing dark patches on the ground, and they sent a sample for testing, eventually separating out a vivid purple layer from the dust and muck. The researchers had uncovered one of the most legendary commodities in the ancient world, a precious product that forged empires, felled kings, and cemented the power of generations of global rulers. 
The Egyptian queen Cleopatra was so obsessed with it, she even used it for the sails of her boat. While some Roman emperors decreed that anyone caught wearing it other than them would be sentenced to death. Jeez. But though this noble pigment was the most expensive product in antiquity, worth more than three times its weight in gold, according to a Roman edict issued in 301 AD, no one living today knows how to make it. Huh. In northeastern Tunisia, just a short distance from what was once the Phoenician city of Carthage, one man had spent most of the last 16 years smashing up sea snails, attempting to coax their <laughs> entrails into something resembling Tyrian purple. Oh. Sure, sure, sure. That's why he's doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Tyrian purple was paraded by the most privileged in society for a millennia. It was a symbol of strength, sovereignty, and money, and ancient authors are particular about the precise hue that was worthy of the name, a deep reddish purple like that of coagulated blood tinged with black. Mm. Pliny the Elder described it as having a shining appearance when held up to the light. It was so central to the success of the Phoenicians, it was named after their city-state Tyr, and they became known as the Purple People. <laughs> <laughs> the shade could be found on everything from cloaks to sails, paintings, furnitures, plaster, wall paintings, jewelry, and even burial shrouds. Oddly, the most celebrated pigment began as a clear fluid produced by sea snails in the Murex family. More specifically, it was mucus. <gasps> yeah, it's going to get a little gross. So... <laughs> Tyrian purple could be produced from the secretions of three species of sea snail, each of which made a different color. Hexaplex trunculus, bluish purple, Balanus brandaris, reddish purple, and Stramonida hemostoma, red. Once snails had been collected, either by hand along rocky coastlines or with traps baited with other snails, it was time to harvest the slime. In some places, the mucus gland was sliced out using a specialized knife. One Roman author explained how the snail's gore would then ooze out of its wounds, flowing out like tears before being collected into oh, mortars for grinding. Like tears. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not as valuable if the animal doesn't suffer. That's why royals right. liked it so much. Right. Yeah. Orphan tears are better than regular tears. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, alternatively, smaller species would be crushed whole, too. But... This is the end of the certainty, unfortunately. Accounts of how colorless snail slime was transformed into the dive legends are vague, contradictory, and sometimes obviously mistaken. To complicate matters further, the dyeing industry was highly secretive. Each manufacturer mm -hmm. had their own recipe, and these complex multi-step formulas were closely guarded. The most detailed record comes from Pliny, who explained the process in the first century AD. It went something like, isolate the mucus glands, they should be salted, left to ferment for three days, then you cook them, done in tin or possibly lead pots, on a quote-unquote moderate heat. Huh. I mean, that's still more information than none. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's clearly it's kind of making a compound with the tin or the lead somehow. Yeah, and given that each snail only contained the tiniest amount of mucus, it could take some 10,000 to make just <gasps> a single gram of dye. Oh my gosh. In 1453, the Byzantine city of Constantinople was captured by the Ottomans, and that was the end of the Eastern Roman Empire, and it took Tyrian purple with it. At the time, dye works were at the center of the city industry. The color had been deeply bound to Catholicism, worn by cardinals, used to dye the pages of religious manuscripts, and now the church had lost control of the pigment's production altogether. So the Pope soon decided that red would become the new symbol of Christian yeah. power, and that could be made easily and cheaply by crushing scale insects. But there may have been another factor. In 2003, scientists stumbled upon a pile of snail shells at the site of the ancient port of Andriake in southern Turkey, and in all, they estimated that this garbage heap dating to the 6th century AD 
contained around 300 cubic meters or 10,500 cubic feet of their remains, corresponding to up to 60 million individuals. Wow. Intriguingly, though the bottom of the pile contained some plump older specimens, those discarded more recently were significantly smaller and younger. And so one explanation could be that the sea snails had been overexploited mm -hmm. and eventually there just weren't any mature snails left. That is our way. Yep, kind of a classic story, pretty high probability on that one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But just a few years after this discovery, another would raise hopes of reviving this ancient color. One day in September 2007, Mohammed Ghassan Norira was taking his usual lunchtime walk on a beach on the outskirts of the city of Tunis, Tunisia. He says there had been a horrible storm the previous night, so there were a lot of dead creatures on the sand like jellyfish, seaweed, and mollusks. Then he noticed a smear of color. An intensely reddish-purple liquid was oozing out of a cracked sea snail. Noira, who works as a consulting manager, was immediately reminded of a story he had learned in school, the legend of Tyrian Purple. He raced to the local harbor where he found many more snails exactly like one on the beach. Their little spiral bodies are covered in spikes, so they often become trapped in fishermen's nets. They hate them, he says. One <laughs> man was plucking them out of his net and putting them in an old tomato can, which Noira later took back to his apartment. To begin with, his experiments were extremely disappointing. That night, he cracked the snails open and looked for the vivid purple entrails he had seen on the beach, but there was nothing there except pale flesh. He put it all in a bag to throw away and went to bed. The next day, the bag's contents had undergone a transformation. Uh -huh. Scientists now know that to jolt the chemicals in murex snails out of their colorless state, they need to be exposed to visible light. Initially, mm. their secretions will turn yellow, then green, turquoise, blue, and eventually a shade of purple, depending on the snail species. Huh. But this is an instant Tyrian purple. Even once the desired color has been achieved, there's still yet more processing to do to turn the pigments into a dye. Mm. And though others have investigated the secretions of sea snails before, including a scientist who processed 12,000 individuals into 1.4 grams of pigment using industrial techniques, Noira wanted to make it the old way, rediscovering the authentic shade that was venerated for millennia. When he took those first sea snails in his apartment back in 2007, it was just a week after his honeymoon. <laughs> he says, my wife was horrified by the smell. She almost kicked me out of the house, but I had to carry on. That was so smart of him to wait until after they were legally married. Right, right, Now, right, right. now yeah. he's going to carry out the stinky experiments. <laughs> it took years for Nuira to make his first powder dye, and when he did, it was a pale indigo color, nothing like Tyrian purple, and extremely dusty. Through years of trial and error, Nuira gradually discovered tricks that he suspects may have been used in antiquity, blending secretions from all three sea snails mentioned in Pliny's account, adjusting the acidity of the mixture, alternating exposure to sunlight with darkness during preparation, and cooking his mixtures for different lengths of time. Eventually, he ended up with pure pigments and dyes that he thinks are uncannily close to true Tyrian purple and live up to the ancient hype. He says, the color is alive, very dynamic. Depending on the light, it shifts and shimmers. It keeps changing and playing tricks on your eyes. Hmm. Huh. By the way, this article has a bunch of images, some old paintings. There's some images of the process. Like, it's really gorgeous. And here you can see him pulling one piece of fabric out of the processed snail innards. And it is absolutely beautiful. <laughs> and so after decades of pungent experiments in his shed, Nuira has been invited to display his pigments and dyed products at exhibitions all over the world, including the British Museum in London and the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. He's also become something of a culinary expert on sea snail recipes. <laughs> he recommends spicy Tunisian murex pasta or fried murex. It's <laughs> crunchy, it's delicious, it's incredible, he says. <laughs> 
But Tyrion Purple is again under threat. Today, the challenge is not invasion or secrecy surrounding how it's made, though, like his ancient counterparts, Nuira is furtive about the exact details of his methods, but extinction. Murex snails are under threat from a barrage of human influences, including pollution and climate change. Stramonita Hame Mastoma, which lends the color a reddish tint, has already vanished from the eastern Mediterranean. So mm. whether or not Tyrion Purple has finally been revived, one thing is certain, it could easily be lost all over again. Time to get those breeding tanks out, man. We got to have this thing back. Yeah. <laughs> I'm intrigued. <laughs> I wonder if there's a way to like arrest the color when it's in one of those early phases. Like I want the Tyrion turquoise or I want right. the Tyrion green or yellow. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't like try peeing on it. <laughs> as silly as that is, a lot of our dyes. Yeah, come from yeah, uric. A little uric acid in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. He probably has. You spent 16 <laughs> years. You're probably going to try everything. Yeah. It was yeah. an ancient technique, you know. That's why he's real secretive about it. He doesn't want to admit. <laughs> <laughs> it's shame. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This is from Smithsonian Magazine. Why restoring a Banksy mural in Venice is so controversial. Hmm. First of all, there were two articles about Banksy this week. I'll throw in two in there if that's allowed. It's a two. This is all this all starts in 2019 when Banksy painted a mural on the wall of an abandoned Venetian palace titled Migrant Child. It works a commentary on refugee crisis. It depicts a young migrant in a life jacket holding up a flare emitting pink smoke. And it's become a major tourist attraction for the city. Mm. The only problem, it sits right next to the water, causing it to fade (gasps) due to the humidity Mm. and salt. But because it's now a landmark, officials have announced plans to restore the mural. (laughs) And as you may have guessed, responses are mixed. (laughs) Marco Golden, an Italian art critic, says... As an advocate of conservation, I would say that the work should be detached from the wall, protected, and exhibited in safe conditions. On the other hand, if I put myself in the artist's shoes, I don't think this is the idea with which his works were born. Mm -hmm. Street artist Evron says to Euronews, Banksy was no fool. He was fully aware that his waterside creation wasn't meant to endure. Restoring it goes against the grain. She adds that she's had someone restore one of her pieces, and she was not thrilled despite their (laughs) heartfelt gesture. And we may all remember how the restoration of the face of Jesus, lovingly restored by an 81-year-old, right? That turned into the screen painting. So plans to restore the Banksy began after the palace's owner informed the Italian superintendents of cultural heritage of the mural's worsening condition. However... The state body only intervenes in the preservation of artworks that are at least 70 years old, which means it's under the jurisdiction of Vittorio Scarbi, an undersecretary in Italy's cultural ministry. Hmm. And get ready for the ego on this one. (laughs) I took action immediately and obtained the availability of a banking foundation that will cover the expenses. I have responsibility for contemporary art, and it is my job to protect it. Mm. All right, boss. <laughs> Migrant Child is stenciled on the lower part of the palace building, which is usually left underpainted due to the splashing waves of passing boats. Mm-hmm. And there's a picture of it in the article, and you can see it just sits a few inches away from the water, and it's only about three feet high. So it is just getting splashed daily. Mm-hmm. But 
fixing this is a bit of a band-aid on a bullet wound. Mm-hmm. Who knows how long the building will be above water? Mm-hmm. Climate change and over-tourism puts Venice at a very real risk of being consumed by the sea. Mm-hmm. And in worst-case scenario, the city could disappear as early as 2100. Wow. Before the Italian authorities step in, many think they should at least speak with Banksy about whether the restoration is appropriate. And this is where the other article from NME is about. It's called Banksy Revealed Real Name in Unearthed 2003 Interview with BBC. What? We're pretty sure Banksy is a dude named Robert Banks who goes by Robbie. (laughs) Wait, wait, that's just his literal last name. It was just that with a Y at the end? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We oversaw it. I'm sure his friends in high school or something called him Banksy, you know? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So turns out they can ask him if they want. They won't because we know what the answer will be. Well, so but we've known this since 2003. We just like missed it. We didn't pay attention it was when he un- said it. Recently, yes. And it was recently unearthed in oh. an interview. Yeah. So at some point in time in 2003, it was said, oh, my name is Robert Banks. And he said, I go by Robbie. Well, of course he does, because his last name is Banks and he goes by Banksy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. But Robbie Banks, like a bank robber. Yeah, it could all be a a made-up thing, for sure. Right, it could be joking there, too. He did kind of do a little bit of Robin Hood action. I'm thinking of that auction where it shredded as (laughs) the auction was going on. Right, but it failed. It only shredded half of it. you got to imagine how frustrating that was for him. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Unless that was the point. That was the art. No, it was was meant to be fully shredded. I'm 100% sure. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And this brings us to the larger question. Do we restore works of art or let them disintegrate Mm -hmm. because nothing lasts forever? I mean, there's something to be said for the intention of the original work. Mm -hmm. Like the great masters didn't necessarily want their stuff to go away, whereas modern artists are much more likely to be looking at it from a perspective of like, you know. The disdain or contempt for the commodification of art. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michelangelo was all about that cash. He was like, commodify (laughs) me, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. This next one comes from The Conversation, and it's called Honeybees Cluster Together When It's Cold, But We've Been Completely Wrong About Why. (gasps) Unfortunately, this discovery isn't like, oh, hey, we learned something new. It's more of an, oh, no, we're the baddies kind of revelation. (laughs) Because according to Derek Mitchell from the University of Leeds, we've been basically torturing bees for over 100 years, and we didn't know it. So honeybees can live in a lot of different climates, including ones that get surprisingly cold. Some honeybees even live in places where the winter temperatures drop to negative 40 degrees Celsius, which is actually the point where Celsius and Fahrenheit overlap, so it's also negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, obviously, they're not very active during the winter season, but they don't technically hibernate. Instead, most honeybee populations will overwinter, as it's called, inside tree cavities, where they cluster together and use shared body heat to keep at least some of the colony over about 10 degrees Celsius or 50 degrees Fahrenheit, which is kind of the minimum body temperature that an individual bee needs to maintain in order to survive. And we know they generally do this in the wild, but we haven't done a ton of detailed viewing inside these tree trunks. Instead, most of our observations of winter bee behavior come, understandably, from the boxed hives that beekeepers use. And as early as 1914, Beekeepers were noting that the bees have a really specific clustering behavior in the winter, where they group together in a disc shape, with the core of the disc being less dense and much warmer than the outer portion or mantle of the disc, where the bees are pushed in more tightly and are more likely to die from cold. Hmm. 
And because every beekeeper saw this behavior every winter, they said, ah, this is the natural instinct of the bees. The ones on the outside protect the ones on the inside to ensure the colony survives. And it wasn't long before they went a step further to say that actually clustering is probably a necessary process, both to sort of weed out the weaker bees in the winter and maybe give them a dormant period so they can be ready for the spring. And this mindset became so widespread that by the time we get to the 1960s, beekeepers in warmer climates where it didn't get cold enough for clustering to happen were actively refrigerating their <gasps> colonies over the winter. No. Yeah. And we don't really do that anymore, but that's because nowadays beekeepers will just refrigerate their colonies for short periods all year long because it's <gasps> a quick and easy way to kill parasitic mite infestations. Oh, okay. Now, it should be noted that there are other ways to clear out a mite infestation should you happen to get one in your bee colony, but it requires finding and isolating the queen, which is much harder than mm -hmm. just freezing all the bees for a little bit. And all of this has been justified by saying, look, it's exactly what happens in the wild. It doesn't really matter if they're spending the winter in a wooden box hive or a wooden tree trunk. This is all just a natural part of the colony life cycle. But according to Mitchell, we couldn't be more wrong. Because, first of all, a wooden trunk is much thicker than a box hive, whose walls are usually about 19 millimeters thick compared to an average of about 150 millimeters inside a tree trunk. What's more... We now know that inside a tree trunk in the wild, the bees do not do this clustering behavior. They mostly just kind of hang out equidistant from each other. Hmm. And that matches what other creatures in cold climates do to stay warm. Penguins, for example, will huddle together to share body heat, but the temperature for the penguins at the center of the huddle is pretty much the same as it is for the penguins near the edges, because it's actually more efficient to have small gaps in between each animal. And Mitchell uses the example of a down jacket. It's really the air between the feathers that is insulating you. And if you compress the side of your jacket down with your hand, you will suddenly feel a lot more cold seeping in from the outside. And when the bees are inside the warm tree trunk, no one is getting too terribly cold and they're able to loosely huddle. But when they're out in the frigid little hive box, Mitchell says it's more like a panic on the edges of the cluster where the bees are trying to force their way inward to get warmer and actually end up losing insulation in the process by getting closer together. Aww. He says this is absolutely not normal behavior, nor is it evolutionarily superior behavior. It's just the only option they have left when the environment is much, much colder than it's supposed to be, which we've been actively forcing upon them for over Ugh. 100 years because we thought it was supposed to happen. Oh, gosh. And he goes a little bit into this idea that I had never heard of called an extended phenotype which is when a creature modifies or creates its own environment to such a significant degree that it really has to be considered an extension of the animal itself. So like mm. spider's webs and beaver dams, for example, would both be considered an extended phenotype of their respective creatures. But for some reason, he says, we don't recognize the natural beehive as a necessary extended phenotype of the honeybee. Because if we did, we wouldn't be using box hives, or at least yep. we'd be making an effort to make those box hives much closer to the hives bees create mm -hmm. in nature. And he ends on this really dark note, as if the rest of the article wasn't dark enough, which is that, quote, there are almost no ethics standards for insects, but there is growing evidence that insects feel pain. So it's, I think it's pretty obvious that they're suffering if they're like scrambling to survive and many of them are dying. But it almost feels threatening the way he's just like, I will come down on you someday. There's going to be like Nuremberg trials for beekeepers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what have we, what has that behavior done to push bees into some 
evolutionary dark hole. I mean, you know, we've sure. been blaming pesticides for their declining numbers, which is also our fault. But right. I'm sure it's all. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've been breeding for the bullies, the mm -hmm. big, strong bees that get in the center. Now we just have mean bees. That's all mm -hmm. we have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. We are going to take a trip to Scotland, courtesy mm. of The Guardian, because that's not a potato. <laughs> yes, folks, the mystery of an Egyptian treasure found buried in the grounds of a Scottish school. It is the gift that keeps on giving. And specifically, this is the tale of Melville House, which is a building and property where over a 30-year period, pupils have uncovered treasures of antiquity. So huh. strange and amazing. So we're going to go back to 1952, where a schoolboy was digging up potatoes. It was part of a punishment where he had to help a gardener at the grounds of his school <laughs> in Fife, Scotland. And that schoolboy stumbled across a bulbous shape he initially mistook for a potato, right? But he discovered later he had found an Egyptian masterpiece. Hmm. Now, the idea of finding ancient treasures buried in the Scottish countryside rather than, I don't know, Cairo. Yeah, it's kind of unlikely. But well, <laughs> it's not like the British aren't known for having sticky fingers. Right. That's true. Right, right. But we're talking about Scotland. So yeah, but that's where you hide it. The British Museum's <laughs> got a whole like subsidiary division. And the <laughs> yeah. yeah. So in 1952, Melville House was occupied by something called Dalhousie School, and a teacher brought the boy's discovery to the then Royal Scottish Museum, now NMS, where the distinguished Egyptologist at the time, one Cyril Aldred, realized its significance as an important mid-12th dynasty red sandstone statue head, whose qualities suggest a royal workshop. Hmm. Then 14 years later, in 1966, an Egyptian bronze votive statuette of a bull was found in the same school grounds by pupils during a vaulting exercise, of all things. One of the boys landed on a spike protruding from the ground. It turned out <gasps> to be from the late or Ptolemaic period. So the supervising teacher, one Mr. McNee, brought the object into the museum for identification. And get this. That Mr. McNee, he was the very first boy who found the head in 1952. Oh, man. He's been right? sticking around. Yes. Now, Aldred offered to have it cleaned by museum staff, but no, McNee took the bull away with him and it disappeared without a trace. Mm. <laughs> so, okay, a few years later, the Dalhousie School closes and Melville House gets purchased in 1975 by the then Fife Regional Council, who used it until 1998 as a residential school for young offenders and children with behavioral issues. Mm -hmm. So in 1984, Dr. Elizabeth Goring was the museum's curator of Mediterranean archaeology when a group of teenagers came by with an object for her to identify. They thought, yeah, maybe it's old. Turned out to be an ancient Egyptian bronze figure of a man. Now, Goring remembered her predecessor, that Aldred, telling her about previous Egyptian finds in Melville's grounds, and she realized the figurine found there had to have been connected. And that third discovery established beyond doubt there had once been a collection there. But how the objects got there, why they ended up buried, still a mystery. So 
she decided to dig a little deeper and she arranged to visit the school to establish where the figurine had been buried. But by the time it had been brought into the museum, some three years later, the original finder had ended up in prison in Edinburgh. So she met with him at Melville House under the supervision of his probation officer so he could show her where they had found the statue. Wow. Now, experts at the British Museum agreed the figurine represented a priest bringing offerings, which in and of itself is a somewhat unusual subject, and it was possibly created during the 25th dynasty. So Goring explored the site further. She found other objects ranging from the top part of a fine figurine of the goddess Isis suckling her son Horus. They even found part of a plaque bearing the eye of Horus. Goring's research extended to the antiquity's legal title. She wanted to figure out, you know, are these owned? Do we have any kind of provenance or paper trail here? But didn't turn out enough information. It was agreed that the finds of that year should be treated as a treasure trove, which I guess has its own sort of, you know, legal treatment. And the museum officially acquired them. So if you want to read more about this, the story of the discoveries is being told for the first time by Goring and her successor, Dr. Margaret Maitland. Going theories about how this all came about, maybe they had been acquired by one Alexander Lord Balgoni, heir to the property, who visited Egypt in 1856 with his two sisters to improve his poor health after falling ill during service in the Crimean War. But he came back to Britain even weaker and died at age 24 from tuberculosis. So they're thinking maybe the grief and sad association of the antiquities with his early death prompted someone to dispose of them. It could also be that stories of the mummy's curse dating back to the 1860s. Science was only so good then, right? And it did link some antiquities like this with ill fortune, bad luck. So someone might have been like, well, time to put them underground. I mean, they clearly weren't that deep underground if a kid is just falling on the ground and getting stabbed in the leg by this thing. The minute that second item was found, that place should have been crawling with metal detectors. They had those Mm -hmm. in the 60s. Like, I don't understand the guy. I mean, he's smart enough to be like, no, I don't need you to clean it. I'm just going to go ahead and hang on to it. But he didn't go looking for the rest of them. For more. Right. It was just the 60s, you know, it was a different time. That's right. He went home and took LSD and forgot all about it. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from BBC.com. It's titled, The Electronic Noses Designed to Prevent Food Poisoning. Ooh. Mm. So, common types of potentially deadly foodborne bacteria are salmonella and E. coli. Both of these have their own electronic personality, says Professor Raz Jelinek, the co-developer of an e-nose called Sensify, and a professor of chemistry at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel. Different strains of bacteria produce a different VOC fingerprint, which in turn creates a different electric signal in the Sensify machine. This is then recorded by an AI software system, which checks it against its ever-growing database and notifies the user. Sensify, which launched earlier this year, hopes that it can transform the fight against infection in the food industry. Its chief executive, Modi Paled, says that in most cases, food producers currently have to send samples off to a laboratory for testing and then wait a number of days for the results to come back. By contrast, Sensify's e-noses can be used on-site by the food firms themselves and are said to give the results in less than one hour. It hasn't released a price for its machines, but says they will be low cost. Food poisoning remains a serious problem around the world. In the U.S., 48 million people, or one in six, get sick every year from a foodborne illness. Of these, 128,000 are hospitalized and 3,000 people die. 
Khaled says, People would say that the meat, poultry, and fish industry are the main culprits. But if you look at the biggest killer in the U.S. food industry in the last five to ten years, it is the romaine lettuce. Mm. Yeah, that's why I don't eat vegetables. Hey, yeah. <laughs> that's why. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at German firm NTT Data Business Solutions, they had a novel way to help train the AI that powers the enos it is developing, coffee. In one test, <laughs> technicians spent three days putting instant coffee powder next to the AI's sensors. The AI then had to identify one of the three options. Good coffee, bad coffee, which is coffee that had been laced with vinegar, and no coffee at all. Or coffee with crystals. Yes. <laughs> You've secretly replaced. Adrian Costers, the firm's innovation manager, says, An odor isn't just a gas. It is a unique combination of gases. And very often there are variations or very small differences in the way things smell. NTT's sensors are fitted to a 3D-printed plastic model of a human nose. And there is a photo of this 3D-printed nose. It's kind of like the bridge and just a bit of the, you know, lips and face around the nose. And it's so big that, like, your hand barely fits around the actual <laughs> wow. nose itself. So, like, this is a kind of big object. And completely unnecessary. Yes. Like, the mechanical <laughs> part of it is the same. They're just like, let's put a giant physical nose around this to get the point across. Yeah, they were literally like, we've got a 3D printer. We're smelling right. Stuff. This is going to be funny. Uh, so I assume it'll probably be a wand or a box right, it or won't something be sold like, like that. that. <laughs> yeah, but who knows? Uh, no pun intended. So ah. <laughs> the idea is that NTT's e-nose can be used not just to sniff out any contagions, but also how fresh or not the foodstuff is. This will enable supermarkets or cafes to know what to sell first when something doesn't come with best before dates. However, some AI experts say that while the latest e-noses work well, they are unlikely to see significant demand because food firms are likely to be put off by the cost. Vincent Peters, founder and chief designer of U.S.-based AI research firm Inheritance AI, says, If you're talking about deploying a worldwide network of small detectors from the picking to storage to delivery, you have to consider how that's going to impact the business model. Meanwhile, fellow AI expert Kel Carlison of San Francisco-based Domino Data Lab says that the e-noses would need complicated fine-tuning for each facility they were working at. However, hmm. such skepticism is not discouraging some entrepreneurs. In New Zealand, a company called Sentient Bio says it has copied the antennae of insects to develop its biosensors, and this has seen it replicate insect proteins and include them in its sensors. Andrew Kralisek, founder and chief technology officer of the firm, says that as a result of this biotechnology, its sensors are thousands of times more sensitive than a dog's nose. Oh. He adds, we can use this biosensor-based tech virtually everywhere. So yeah, maybe it's not a data electronic signal. <sighs> maybe it's an ant biosensor signal or something yeah, like that. Yeah, or they're going to put that into one of those Boston Dynamic dogs, and now right. we've got a robot drug-sniffing dog. Yeah, that's kind of inevitable. That's right? where they're going to make their money, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's where you get your money is from the government, from the oh, police. Yeah. Well, uh -huh. and if the lawyers get involved, then it just becomes a question of what's more expensive, the subscription to the nose machine right. or the cost of being sued when somebody dies from romaine lettuce poisoning. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. like if it gets to the point where they're like, legally, every one of you has to have this or you're negligent, then everyone will have it. Or we go through the process and realize that it's way more cost effective to have a pupper do it, which, you know. Yeah, just train dogs to sniff all the lettuce before they give it to us. I mean, <laughs> if my dog could do that, boy, that'd be nice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> At the very least, it sounds cute. Yes. That's right. <laughs> and all of our new technology should be cute. That's why they 3D printed a giant nose for it. I mean, come yeah. on. <laughs> I didn't want it to be so impersonal. <laughs> you just want to smell something without nostrils? I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't That's want to weird. do that? Monster. <laughs>
All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include The Boring Truth About the Library of Alexandria, Worms Butt Grows Eyes and Then Swims Away to Make Babies, and 60 Years After JFK's Assassination, The Agent Who Tried to Save Him Opens Up. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.